You're listening to the official podcast of Asbury University, produced by students with God-honoring conversations that inform, edify, and encourage. This is Asbury. We explore culture and current topics through a Christian worldview, promoting a well-balanced life, and we empower our community to belong, become, and be set apart. I'm your host, Abby Lobb. Welcome to This is Asbury. Thank you for joining us on This is Asbury. Today we're going to talk about becoming, and we have Dr. Brown back here in the studio. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the age-old question of what we are becoming is about as elemental to humanity as it gets. We are always becoming something. You know, we become a student, we become a parent, we become a retiree, we become rich, we become poor, we become bitter, you know, down it goes. For better or for worse, we're always becoming something. No matter what, life moves forward. And in that, with a Christian worldview, we believe we're always striving to become more like Christ Mm -hmm. by the renewing of our mind. So I want to carry that theme through this episode as we hear from you what this notion of becoming means for our students. This idea is extremely countercultural that we would become more like Christ. You know, people today are praised for becoming more of their authentic self or fill in the blank. And we want students to become more like Christ in order to live their fullest lives. So what markers of becoming do you notice or hope to see among our student body at Asbury? We say four things in our students' becoming story. Deep thought, effective service, ordered love, and holistic practice. And I could share a lot, just a a few comments about each of these. When we talk about deep thought, we're, we're a university, we're in the academy, we want to cultivate great thinkers. We want students to be great thinkers, to teach them the the currency of evaluating the merits of an idea through argumentation and evidence and reasoning, prudential judgment, teaching students to be governed by the norms of truth-seeking. I I love this expression that was used of someone I admire, that they had a well-furnished mind. And I love that kind of deliberate way of thinking about how we, we furnish or populate our mind. So we say that academic excellence is rigorous, relevant 21st century education that uniquely equips our students with those requisite skills necessary to navigate the complexities of a dynamic, information-saturated, technology-driven global economy. And in a Christian context, learning and intellectual development is never considered apart from moral development. Without a moral compass, Wendell Berry says, a good forger has a valid claim to our respect as a good artist. It's not just how we think or what we make. We have to judge well. There's a similar quote, the ethicist Martha Nussbaum, she says, a good doctor is also a good poisoner. It's not enough to just have capacity. It's directed by that person's character. So it's not just the skill, it's the moral application. And in this case, that would separate the artist from the forger or the life-saving doctor from the life-taking poisoner. So that's deep thought in our tradition. When we say effective service, one of the interesting things about the recent pandemic 
is that I don't think it created something new in the marketplace so much as it accelerated pre-existing inevitabilities. It accelerated an already changing world. And part of preparing students for this dynamic world that they're going to enter into means recognizing new paradigms of preparation. We're not just preparing students to get a job. We're preparing them to add value wherever they go, in their job spheres, in professional spheres, however they choose to serve. We're not simply preparing students to get their first job, but their fifth and their ninth and their twelfth. We're not preparing them for the year they graduate. We're preparing them for the future, for 2030, 2040. We're not preparing them to keep up with the hard skills necessary for marketplace relevance at a given time, which is always changing. We're inculcating these enduring qualities that will outlive and outlast the dynamism and the unpredictability of tomorrow. And we're not simply preparing students to attain information, but to grow in knowledge and wisdom and prudence and virtue. So effective service allows us to experience this fulfillment through the realization of our God-reflecting capacities to, to edify and serve our neighbors, our communities, and the common good, and to glorify God. What we see in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I don't know what 2035 will be like. I know that our students who are problem solvers, who are critical thinkers, who can work effectively with others, who know how to communicate and articulate themselves, who know how to demonstrate reason and judgment, they're going to be fine. They're going to be relevant to that time, whatever its character. That third attribute was ordered love. This is actually a, a phrase used by St. Augustine in City of God. He defines virtue as ordered love, loving what is truly lovely, pursuing that which is worthy of our pursuit, desiring what is truly desirable. We're a Wesleyan school. We want to get the intellect right, but we want to get the heart right. It's not just about our intellect, it's about our heart. So we've had chapel services. I, not too long ago, one of our themes was, you are what you love. We're not just thinking beings, we're worshiping beings. What we love matters. And finally, there's holistic practice that Yes, we want our students to have ordered love. We want them to be great thinkers. We want them to be effective in how they serve. But we also just want them to live well. We want them to flourish, to have fullness and wholeness across every domain of their life, and to practice those sensibilities and those judgments that enable them to live well, to flourish and experience God's shalom. If a student had me in class, they would have heard me say Ephesians 2.10, the NRSV version says, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. In other words, we were made on purpose, therefore we have a purpose. We inhabit a story. Christianity is not just doctrine, it's a story, and it's a story that has narrative logic, and we live our lives directionally through the narrative arc of that story. And we want to orient ourselves and our students in that Godward direction. So in summary, our becoming story is deep thought, effective service, ordered love, holistic practice. Or as we have put it, if we're going to make that more succinct, we want our students to think well, serve well, love well, live well. That's great.
it's not always an easy process, you know, depending on where you're coming from and what your story is. So do you have some favorite examples or anecdotes of a person or a community who really has been transformed by adversity or whatever it may be to becoming something new? So many examples, so many stories. I can think of students who have come to Asbury maybe just to play a sport or to be in theater or, or something else that's more narrow, but who have graduated equipped and inspired to serve and even serve in really difficult spaces. One of my former students, for example, came to play tennis. That was it. But he now works in a difficult urban ministry context. He's assisting men and women transitioning from prison to a work context. Uh, he does racial reconciliation work. It's hard work. I know graduates who want to maximize their earning potential so they can give it away. <laughs> Where did they learn that? We have so many graduates in Hollywood and in media who are working diligently to create redemptive narratives to draw our attention to the things above, as Paul says in Colossians. Examples go on and on. I see graduates who are great thinkers. They have great capacity in their respective fields, but their heart is to use their mind and their hands to realize their God-reflecting capacities, realize their fullest humanity, serve others, and glorify God. That's great. So, you know, these students, when they leave here, whether they're going to become a spouse or they're going to become a doctor or whatever that is they're going to do when they live here, a crucial part of this process is that they build a solid spiritual foundation. So what are some key practices from your own life that you'd encourage podcast listeners or students with that have helped you become the leader God has called you to be? Yeah, students have often asked me what books I recommend, and I tell them about a book, the late Nazarene professor Richard Taylor. I describe him as the best author you've never heard of. And Dr. Taylor has a book called The Disciplined Life. I've read it numerous times. And in it, he says, there are scores of naturally brilliant people who will never rise above mediocrity because they won't make the sacrifice superiority requires. And you're absolutely right, Abby, we're all becoming something, but we need to carefully audit those daily practices and habits, and some would say cultural liturgies that shape and govern what we're becoming, even unwittingly. I always encourage students to start the day in a period of reading and quiet and prayer. Give those first fruits of the day to the Lord. Really settle and center yourself in that moment. Be an avid reader. Be a great thinker. Be a great listener. I mentioned Richard Taylor. He has a great quote, dogmatism. He says, is when we stop listening. <laughs> we need to listen really well. I mentioned earlier cultural liturgies. James K.A. Smith, he's written a lot on this. He says we need to undertake what he describes as a liturgical audit. In other words, thinking carefully about what are those things that I do that do something to me? And what story about human flourishing is carried in various cultural practices? He says, to what kingdom are these rituals aimed at? What am I giving myself over to? And there are just so many examples here. First and foremost, how do I spend my time? What do I watch? What do I read? If there was an impartial spectator viewing my actions, uh, what would that say about me? I've joked before, many years ago, a student said, you know, after a difficult test, I just need to rest by killing zombies for three hours or so. I'm guessing that's a reference to a video game. And you know, I just thought, that's not rest. It's a certain way you're using your time, but it's not correct to associate that with rest. 
How do we think about technology? What desires are reinforced by the practices and rituals associated with our technology? What stories are carried in those practices? Closely related to this is how we're shaped in such an overwhelming consumer society, which has its own liturgical program. One theologian said consumerism is not material attachment to anything. It's detachment from everything. Nothing satisfies. Someone else called it the consumerism's deification of dissatisfaction. So do I even recognize that there are forces aimed to create a sense of dissatisfaction in me? And then what about the liturgies in our relationship with others, how we even conceive of others? These are just a few of the things I encourage our students to think about when they consider discipline and who they are becoming. I think it starts with this kind of awareness, and that's why I love the word audit, just looking at how do I use my time and what are these things that I do that do something to me. That's good. Well, in closing, do you have a word of encouragement specifically for Gen Z students or other educators who are working with them as they're walking through the sanctifying process of becoming more like God? Here's what I would say, and again, I'm an educator. I love ideas. I love a life of the mind. I love intellectual discussions. But we are desiring creatures. We're made to love. We exist to love. Loving's what we do. We suffer love. Listeners might remember some of those Geico commercials where it said, it's what you do, like it always would end. Like if you're the band Europe, you count things down. It's what you do. Or if, if you're a stuntman, you cheat death. It's what you do. If you are a referee... You way over-explain things. It's what you do. My favorite was actually, there was one that, it was something to the effect of, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. <laughs> it's what you do. I was like, oh, amen. Well, here's my point. We could say that if you're a human, you love, you desire, you value, you seek. It's what you do. To love is human, but what we love will constitute what kind of human we are. There's this great quote, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He says, that which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Steve Deneff is the pastor of College Wesleyan Church in Marion, Indiana, and he comes to speak at Asbury relatively often. And years ago, He had done a series of sermons on desire, but he said how someone's life goes may very well boil down to how they manage desire. In other words, what are those habits that are helping me to unlearn inordinate affections, and what habits help me to reinforce new desires and appetites and impulses? I think any education worthy of the name will not just attend to what a student knows, but also what they love. This is why we say education is formation here at Asbury. What they give themselves to, what they consider is ultimate, what they worship, and what they orient their life toward. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This is Asbury. To learn more about Asbury University, visit asbury.edu. 